Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning again. We pray that you would bless this time of opening your word. Lord, may we be honoring and what is said. Father, may I be clear to speak what needs to be spoken, clearly articulating it. Lord, I pray that uh, the minds of those who hear would be readied and hearts be readied to receive. And Lord, that there would be the sacred trust that is going on between preacher and congregants Lord, as they receive and I preach, may you be glorified. Father, we know that we know that your word will do its work, and we can trust in that in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Jonathan had mentioned my, my health, and I, it probably makes sense for me to quickly just say uh, that I did have that procedure a week ago, and, and now I'm through that, and, and everything went well. I think we said that last week, and I'm completely recovered. Um, the medications were changed, and that's been a positive change. And working on some other things in my life, uh, some structure, better structure, and some other things that are helping um, my 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 life and helping my health. I hope in the long term. And so, I'm thank you for your prayer. I thank you for your patience. Um, it's been a it's been a long road. I've been do, dealing with some of this stuff since I was just past forty. So it's it's uh when it's hard to know that that's you know that we we live in fragile fragile bodies, right? And and you know and and it's hard to know that in the strength of my life that I'm dealing with the fragility of life. But at the same time, it's good, right? Because it's making me depend upon the Lord uh, even more so. And so, and making, giving me a, a perspective that I wouldn't have had otherwise, as I as I've dealt with the trials of, and difficulties of of having to deal with bad health, struggling health. So, well, if you turn to Colossians, Colossians one twenty eight, I'm going to read uh, two verses, two verses this morning, two verses, Colossians one twenty eight and one twenty nine. Read, starting verse 28, We proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose I also I labor, striving according to His power, which mightily works within me. Now over these past few weeks, including a, a few interruptions, uh, we have been working through the Grace Bible Church, the Grace Bible Church's philosophy of ministry. We have used the following as our working definition of what we are calling a biblical philosophy of ministry. This is the definition. A biblical philosophy of ministry is the summation of biblical priorities that determine how our church is to function. Now here at Grace Bible Church, we are committed to four pillars, we've called them, which form the foundation of our philosophy of ministry. Uh, at, here, here at Grace Bible Church, we're committed to the exaltation of God, 
We are committed to the exposition of Scripture. We are committed to the equipping of the saints. And lastly, we are committed to evangelizing the lost. Now, I want to spend a few minutes here to help us understand how our philosophy of ministries, ministry, these pillars will help shape the ministries of our church. As I said a, a few weeks ago, as we consider a particular philosophy or particular ministry that is at Grace Bible Church, we want to ensure that it is upheld. That ministry is upheld by our philosophy of ministry pillars. So as we evaluate each ministry, we will need to ask the following questions about it. The first question would be, is the ministry God-exalting? We can do many things which might may be fine outside of the church, but those things might not be God-exalting to do in the church. As an example, Angie and I went to a large church in California one, one time, and it had a, a children's church during the main service. Sounds good, right? So we went to drop or, or check our kids in at the drop-off, which happened to be a large game room. We were a little incredulous, but hopeful that there might be more to their time than just games. But as it turned out, the children were allowed to play games for the entire service with very little supervision. Now, based on the pep talk, I mean sermon that we heard, I'm thankful that they just played the entire time because because the teaching probably would not have been that good. But here's the here's the thing. I'm certain that my children enjoyed their time. I mean, they played in basically, basically an arcade the entire service. But I'm also certain that it would not be God-exalting for GBC to have that same model. If we decided to put together a children's church, for us to model it that way would not be God-exalting. So therefore, we wouldn't do it. So it's, it, that's how we want to make sure that we're evaluating ministries. Now, ultimately, the scenario I'm describing would actually also fall under points three and four. In other words, if we choose to have a children's church, we would need to answer the following questions based on our philosophy of ministry. First question is, are we equipping? That's point three. Are we equipping the parents? Are we, are we equipping them to shepherd their children? Is that part of what we're doing as, as, when we do this, when we take up this Children's church. Another question we might ask is, are we equipping the children and readying them for a larger world which they will face sooner or later? Are we equipping them from the Word of God to be able to deal with what they're facing in the future? An even greater question that even comes before that is, are we truly evangelizing our children even if we don't take the the if even if we don't take the if we don't take that is the opportunity to open God's word and teach them we we need to be we need to be sharing the gospel we need to be teaching the gospel to our children as part of as part of a children's church do you see then how the philosophy of ministry is is up would would uphold would would give us inform us as to how we would go about doing even something like children's church. Beloved, we must evaluate every ministry in the same way. 
And in doing so, we need to model each ministry in, in such a way that it is supported by our, our Grace Bible Church philosophy of ministry. Now, we will also need to develop specific philosophy of ministry for each ministry, for each of our ministries. When we complete this sermon series, I, I hope to start the process of developing one, a philosophy of ministry for each ministry, beginning with our preaching ministry. So sitting down and writing out what it means to, to what we want to accomplish as far as our preaching ministry and how, how it, how the philosophy of ministry upholds that. Now we want to do that for each and every ministry that we have. Evaluate those ministries to make sure that the, that the pillars are upholding this, uh, the, these ministries. Now, a few weeks ago, we looked at the first pillar, which forms the foundation of our Grace Bible Church philosophy of ministry. We are committed to the exaltation of God. We studied Isaiah 6, and we, we found or we showed the four inevitable results when a church is com committed to God's exaltation. The first result is we will recognize God's holiness and power. <clears throat> the text says in Isaiah that Isaiah saw God high and lifted up on his throne. Isaiah recognized the, the grandeur of the Lord God. He, he recognized the, his power and dominion, and above all, he recognized his holiness. When we recognize God's holiness and power, we will certainly come to realize our own rebellion. And that's the second result. We realize that man is in rebellion against a holy God. It's the first clear implication of, of the exaltation of God. Man's rebellion began in, in the Garden of Eden and continued to Isaiah's day and ultimately to our own day. Isaiah realized his own rebellion when he saw the vision of God on his throne and cried out, Woe is me! But God did not leave him in that position, but readied him for ministry. Beloved, when we exalt God, we will come to see our true need because we'll come to see our true state. And our true need is His grace. We need grace for salvation and we need grace to do God-exalting works. When we realize the preciousness of this grace, we'll come to relish it. God saves whom He will save. He uses whom He will use in ministry. It's all by His sovereign will and by His grace. When we truly begin to understand the awesome holiness of God, we will truly relish His grace and mercy. We don't deserve salvation, beloved. We don't deserve to be saved. We don't deserve His grace. And when we come to see how He's given us, uh, lavished upon us His grace in our lives, we'll have an insatiable desire to, to share His truth to reveal His truth. We've all been around that new Christian, right? You know, the one who can't keep from telling others about the goodness of God, what God has done in his life and saving them from their sins. When we exalt God, we continually re realize our desperate need for Him and we'll pro proclaim this to, who all, to all who will listen. In Isaiah's case, he was charged with bringing the truth to a rebellious people who would stiffen their necks and refuse to repent. Yet Isaiah didn't, because of his understanding of who God is, he didn't stop revealing his truth, no matter what they did to him. Today we'll glimpse the heart of Paul, who couldn't keep from preaching Christ because of all that he had done for him. Now two weeks ago, we studied our second pillar, 
of our philosophy ministry. We are committed to the exposition of Scripture. Now, we started by defining what we mean by expository preaching. Now, I think it's important, especially in light of some of the things that Jonathan brought back, it's important that we understand this. It's vital that we understand this. So let's listen to this definition. It says we can define a, an expository sermon as text-driven preaching where the point of the sermon and its outline are derived from the correct interpretation of the text of Scripture. This is arrived at through careful exegesis using the literal historical grammatical method of interpretation. Again, we talked about that two weeks ago, but the point is is that we, 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 we interpret the text literally, meaning we just take a, a literal reading of what it says. We interpret the text historically, that we, we understand the history around the text, and we, we interpret it grammatically, using the phrases and the words as the author intended them and as superintended by the Holy Spirit. But the preacher takes all this information then and carefully explains the God-intended meaning of the text, giving it giving its modern implications. And as we considered this definition, we studied the difference between exegesis, which uses the literal historical grammatical method of interpretation, and eisegesis, where the preacher takes his own thoughts and ideas and reads them into the text. Now, we've all seen or heard of the Christian athlete, I'll, I'll pick on Christian athletes, who quote Philippians 4.13, says this, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He or she does this, quotes this verse, to show that they, can, they will endure some athletic endeavor or, or push hard in an athletic event to overcome the competition. Yet Paul didn't have athletic prowess in his mind when he when he quote or wrote this verse he was telling the philippians that he could live through suffering in the strength of christ to preach the gospel to the lost has nothing to do with an athletic event yet we see it used that way that's what we would call eisegesis is not taking is taking that out of context that verse out of context and putting our own thoughts into it there's also another innocuous way to fall, fall prey to eisegesis. Many preachers do it. I've done it. They study a passage and come up with a theological concept and preach that concept, many times missing the whole point of the passage. John MacArthur relates the story in, of his preaching lab. This is very, very early on. He just, By the way, John MacArthur is celebrating 50 years in the pulpit today, uh, if you didn't know that. Uh, so, uh, is it yesterday? Well, the, today is the Sunday. Yesterday was the actual anniversary. So, uh, but early on, before he actually started at Grace Church, he was in his preaching lab where he preached one of his first sermons. He got to the end, and the professor said, you missed the whole point of the passage. So it happens to the best of us, right? I, I actually have a similar story in, in seminary. I was preaching in preaching lab, and a young man preached Genesis 12. And as he was preaching, the professor became obviously agitated. At the end of the sermon, he slammed his hand, the professor that is, slammed his hand down and said, I'm appalled that you just preached Genesis 12 and you never mentioned the Abrahamic covenant or its implications. I felt so bad for the guy, right? But I bet you he didn't do that again, or he's not preaching. I, actually, he still is preaching, so, so I know that he's not doing that again. But the point is, 
The point is, is that we can easily fall and fall prey to this to the to eisegesis. We must be then relentless to preach the point of the passage of Scripture, and that's what we want to do here at Grace Bible Church. A while back, Angie said something to me. My wife, Angie, said something to me that struck me. She said that she was going to start wearing a T-shirt that says "Stick to the text." I guess she was trying to give me a hint, but the point is, we must preach the text. We must preach the text. One good question you might ask of an expository sermon is this, do I know God's intended message from the text that was just preached? Do I know it? Did He help me understand what God's intended message was or is? Now, if you remember, we focused on the man who is charged to preach the Word of God. We are committed to the exposition of Scripture, therefore we demand that the preacher of God be diligent or assiduous, we said, in his work, using an A word. We also demand that the man of God, the preacher of the Word of God, never be ashamed of his work. We also wanted them to to make sure that they were accurate in their work and and aware of what their work is. And we studied 2 Timothy 2.15, which states, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We demand then that the, the preacher of the word of God be assiduous or diligent. This is not limited to the parsing of verbs and, or, and understanding the history around the passage. We demand that the preacher be first and foremost a man of prayer. We expect the sermon to be bathed in prayer, both by the man of God and the people of God. Charles Spurgeon says this, Shall I give you yet another reason why you should pray? I have preached my very heart out. I could not say any more than I have said. Will not your prayers accomplish that which my preaching fails to do? Is it not likely that the church has been putting forth its preaching hand, but not its praying hand? Oh, dear friends, let us agonize in prayer. Charles Spurgeon, end quote. The point is, is that the man of God is to bathe the sermon in prayer, and the people of God are, are to join him in doing so. If we want an effective preaching ministry, if we want effective expository preaching, then we will bathe the sermon in prayer. Secondly, we demand that the preacher of the Word of God never be ashamed of his work. In other words, he must not be the type of man who would cut the cut corners. He must not be lazy or insolent, but be ready to spend the time necessary to get the job done correctly. He must not be the kind of man who would who would give his people a steady diet of Saturday night specials. You know what those are, right? Saturday night I'm fumbling around to figure out what I need to preach. Must not be that kind of man. Thirdly, we demand that the preacher of the Word of God be accurate. This is related to the second point. He must be willing to spend the hours necessary to understand God's intended meaning of the passage. He must be able to accurately communicate the the truth of the passage to the people of God. Now, I didn't mention this last time, but he needs to have, he must have the tools available to him to accurately translate and interpret Scripture. He must be able to interpret the language and evaluate the meaning and the grammar of the words and phrases. He must have the ability to do the research required to understand the text. He must have the the necessary commentaries to ensure he has not erred in his interpretation. 
And he must be freed up and is to have the time to do his work accurately. There's a sign hanging in a restaurant. It says this, We are a slow food cafe. That is, not, that is because we take pride in serving food to you that is closer to what the best cook in your family can prepare for you. That takes time, so do not expect speed, but do expect quality. If fast food is what you want, then perhaps you should choose another cafe. Brothers and sisters, this can be applied to sermon prep. It takes time to prepare and it takes time to consume. We should never expect, you should never expect to hear a half-baked sermon here at Grace Bible Church. We expect quality. We expect accuracy. We expect prayerfulness. All of which takes much time. Fourth, we expect the preacher of the Word of God to be aware of his work. We are preaching the blessed Word of God. This is the Word of truth. We need to treat the occasion for what it is and approach this time in wonder for what God will reveal to us. We are hearing the mind of Christ. That's why we're committed to expository preaching, the exposition of Scripture, all of which brings us to our next pillar which forms the foundation of our philosophy of ministry at Grace Bible Church. We're committed to these four pillars, which form our foundation, and so therefore we're committed to our third pillar, the equipping of the saints. Colossians 1.28 Now I read it earlier. I read it earlier. We proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose I also I labor striving according to His power which mightily works within me. Therefore, at Grace Bible Church Gainesville, we equip believers by boldly preaching the Word of Christ, the person of Christ, that is. It's Colossians 1.28. Now, to best understand these two verses, we need to explore and understand their context. Put simply, Paul's letter to the Colossians proclaims the supreme power authority, and sufficiency of Christ. The recipients of the letter were, were part of a church at Colossae, in Colossae, which was a town in southwest Asia, Asia Minor. Now, Paul himself did not plant this church, and, and he didn't even know all the people who were there. The church was most likely planted by Epaphras, who had been converted to Christ in Ephesus and had returned to Colossae and had planted the church. The after the, after the church had begun then, after, after it began to grow, false teachers began to infiltrate the body. They were teaching that they, that they possessed what they claimed to be superior wisdom, which was only available to the superior or uh, spiritual elites. They believed that they had special knowledge, that is. They were also weighing down the people with regulations. These regulations actually had some Jewish elements. Uh, these these uh, Jewish elements such as circumcision, dietary laws, and festival observances. <clears throat> so in this letter, Paul then responds that the real knowledge of God has been revealed in the person of Christ, in the person of Jesus. In other words, people don't need to follow special rules and regulations or have a secret knowledge to follow Him and have access to Him. He is all we need, and everyone who calls upon His name has direct access to Him. He is truly the Lord of all. 
and absolutely nothing else is required to supplement salvation found in Him. That's Paul's point of the whole letter. He's sufficient. Christ is sufficient. Now, it's with this understanding that we approach these verses. So let's look at the first point in our outline. We equip believers by boldly preaching the person of Christ. Paul says, we proclaim Him. Now, literally, this phrase could be translated, Him we proclaim. In the Greek, the clear emphasis here is on the one whom we are proclaiming. As we have briefly stated, the Paul spent the entire first chapter arguing for the sufficiency of Him whom we are proclaiming. He proclaimed the glories of Jesus the Messiah. If you listen, starting in verse 13, he says this, For He, that would be the Father, rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. (coughs) He is the image of the invisible God, the, the firstborn of all creation. Now, here, the the word translated firstborn could be translated showing Christ's preeminence. In other words, He is over all His creation. He is first in rank. He is the preeminent one. The writer of Hebrews similarly said that He is the radiance of of His glory. That would be the Father and the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. That's Hebrews 1.3. Paul uses the same theme in the following verses in Colossians. In verse 16, he says this, For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, and visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Clearly, Paul then is proclaiming the the preeminence of Christ over all His creation and over the thrones and the dominions and rulers and authorities. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, holds all things together by the word of His power. Paul goes on to say in verse 18, Colossians 1.18, He is also the, the head of the body, the church, and He is the beginning and the firstborn from, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. So the Father made Him preeminent over all creation, and He's also the the head of the church. Again, we see the supremacy of Christ over His church. According to Paul in the the next verses, your reconciliation, verses 19-22, your reconciliation depends wholly upon Christ's work on the cross. Outside of the blood of His cross, you can have no peace. You were formerly alienated and hostile, yet He has reconciled you through His death that He might present you before the Father blameless and beyond reproach. Ultimately, Paul's point is this. We, we bring nothing to this transaction. Jesus has done all the work. Therefore, He is sufficient in your salvation. We dare not add anything, no matter how well-meaning we might be. Whether it be a circumcision, whether it be a festival, whether it be any work that we might do, we dare not bring anything because we bring nothing but our sin to the altar of our salvation. He accomplished everything for you and for me, and we must not add any further burdens to salvation for ourselves or for others. 
That's Paul's point. Therefore, Paul says it is Him. Him we proclaim. Him we proclaim. We have no other message but the message of a crucified Messiah. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 1.23, we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul's passion was to proclaim Him, to proclaim the One who had done so much for Him. Now this word translated proclaim means to publicly declare a truth or happening. It's a general term, not restricted to formal preaching. So it encompasses any sort of public proclamation. In other words, Paul could not stop speaking of Jesus who had saved him. Even as he writes, Paul proclaims him while he's sitting in a Roman prison. Chains might hold him down, but the gospel it cannot be held back from going forth. According to Paul, there are three elements of this to this proclamation. Let's look at the first one. He says this, we proclaim Him admonishing every man. So therefore, we admonish everyone. We need to make an observation of the text here. Notice that Paul uses the phrase every man or every person three different times. Paul could have, could have shortened this verse by eliminating the repeated use of this phrase, but he seems to be emphasizing the idea of every man or every person. Now, I believe this emphasis is on the availability of the gospel to every person who lives from every walk of life. See, think about this from his point of view, from the theme of the, of the letter. You don't need any higher knowledge to know Him. You don't need to be a part of a secret club to know Him. You don't need to perform some secret rites to know Him. You don't need to observe certain festivals, including the Sabbath, to know Him. This good news of Christ is to be made available to every person, including you and me, and including people who are nothing like you and me. Now, having said this, it seems that Paul's goal in these verses is is focusing on those who have turned to Christ in saving faith, which is why we're using this verse under equipping, equipping of the saints. You see, anyone from any walk of life can know Him. And anyone from any walk of life can grow in Him. Or at the very least, it would seem to presuppose the conversion of some who would hear the proclamation of the Gospel. And What I'm saying is, is that, that this, these verses uh, presuppose that someone has turned to the Lord Jesus by hearing the Gospel. Now we see that progression, we'll see that progression in, in, the, in Paul's terms. Now, this reminds me of a maximum security prison called Angola. This prison houses the worst of the worst convicted criminals. criminals, Murderers, rapists, hardened drug dealers. Yet it also houses a thriving seminary and ministry where hundreds have come to know the Lord through the proclamation of the gospel. And many have become ministers of the gospel through training here or there. Brothers and sisters, what I want you to understand is, is that God is not limited in whom He can save. And He is not limited in who He can use. He chooses whom He will. And He grows whom He will. 
Now, Paul says that we admonish. We admonish everyone. This word speaks of counsel in view of sin and coming judgment for sin. This is the word where we get, that we get nuthetic counseling from. This word means to advise someone concerning the dangerous consequences of some happening or action. We know that, that sin has grave consequences in this life and in the life to come if we don't repent and turn from it. Now, as this word seems to imply, it focuses on the preacher's warning of Christians who might be tempted to stray from the truth and to stray into a life of sin. Paul told the Ephesians, Ephesian elders this in Acts 20, 31, Therefore, be on alert, remembering that day and night for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. Paul says that he admonished each one, meaning that he took a personal interest in the lives of each of each and every person. No doubt he prayed for them, but he also took time to guide them in the word of the truth of the word of God. In first Thessalonians 5.14, he says this, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly. The idea here is clear. We are to warn those who are in danger of wandering into sinful actions and its consequences, and we are to admonish those who are unruly. We are to warn them of the consequences of sin, both temporal and, and the eternal consequences. So our ministries here at Grace Bible Church must contain an element of admonishment or warning. We must be willing to call sin what it is. We must never be guilty of soft-pedaling the effects of sin. Our tendency, our temptation, that is, might be to gloss over these things, especially if a person is influential in in the church or our community or well-off financially or give large, large amounts of money. But it would be, it is ultimately unloving to gloss over the effects of sin. We must be willing to stand against sin even when we may lose our standing in the community or financially. We need to be willing to confront it. We need to recognize though that there's a time to encourage to righteousness and there's a time to con- condemn sinful actions. You see, When we admonish, when we warn, restoration must always be our goal. Yet we must be willing, though, to break fellowship in certain situations, especially when dealing with false teachers. That's what what Paul was dealing with. He was dealing with false teachers in the church, and he he was willing to call them out for it. You see, the goal of our of church discipline, we haven't talked about church discipline officially from the pulpit, but the goal of church discipline is always restoration. But there is a, there is a time to break fellowship with, with the hope of future, future rest, restoration. With false teachers, though, and divisive men, we're to move quickly to protect the sheep. Paul commanded Titus, reject a factious man after a first and second warning. That's Titus 3.10. The word translated warning is the same root word we, that we've used, or that Paul used, or that Paul used for admonish here in our text. Therefore, we should recognize that there are situations when we need to decisively deal with cer- certain people. So we've seen the first element of our proclamation of Christ. We are to admonish. We are to warn. We are to warn of the effects of sin. We are to be willing to call out sin and break fellowship when it is called for. But but our goal is to be restoration, restoring the sinning one. 
Let's look at the second element, which must be present in our proclamation of Christ. We teach everyone. Paul says, we proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom. The word translated teaching refers to imparting positive truth. The teaching is part of the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Jesus told His disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. To become a disciple then is to become a pupil or a learner. So it's incumbent upon Christians to be pupils, sitting at the feet of Christ, learning from His Word. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this about discipleship. Christianity without discipleship is always Christianity without Christ. End quote. Therefore, it is crucial for pastors and teachers to teach their people with all wisdom. We, cannot, we can't leave our people to flounder in wave after wave of false doctrine and worldly thoughts. Psalm 19 says that the testimony of the Lord is sure making wise the simple. The people need to be taught the Scripture before they can become wise unto the Lord. In other words, it is through the teaching of the Word and much prayer that the brethren are taught wisdom. John Newton says this, The chief means for attaining wisdom and suitable gifts for the ministry are the Holy Scriptures and prayer. End quote. You see, Newton speaks of the right kind of wisdom. Wisdom that from, wisdom which is from above. James taught, James taught that there is a wisdom, there is a wisdom from below, a worldly wisdom. He described this type of wisdom as earthly, natural, and demonic. You see, wisdom that is from below comes to us naturally. Wisdom from below comes to us uh, it comes to us naturally, and, and wisdom from below takes advantage of who we are naturally. Now, you've heard people say, that's just how I am. You can't change me. In other words, they, they, are, they just do what comes naturally, and they have no desire to change. Angie and I have attended many sports events over the years, and inevitably, even in Christian sporting events, there will be one or more parents who lack self-control. You know them. You've seen them. They're the ones yelling at their child or screaming at the, at the refs. They, they lack complete self-control. And after it's all over, you might hear them say, well, that's just how I am. That's just how I am. I'm, I'm an emotional person. I just, I'm just the type of person who tells it like it is. No, really, actually, you lack self-control. You, you need to bridle your tongue. You, you can be sure that Competitive situations like sports or even competitive arenas like, arenas like academics and music reveal our sinful nature. And these things reveal our love for worldly wisdom. James says wisdom from below is earthly and natural and, and demonic, as we said earlier. But wisdom from above is pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy. That's James 3.17. Brothers and sisters, wisdom from above does not come naturally. It is not easy to practice, but it must be diligently taught in our church. This is why we are, as a church, committed to equipping the saints. We recognize the importance of teaching our people the precepts of the Lord. We realize the impact of making disciples of the people of God. 
we, we must be all, all must be involved in this process for it to work. First, you must, every one of you must become a student of the Word of God. You need to submit yourself to the regular teaching of the Word. At the very least, you should commit yourself to the weekly preaching of the Word, but you shouldn't limit it to this. You should be in a discipleship relationship with a mature believer. If possible, you should be attending our bi-weekly studies, men's and women's studies. But you must realize this, that you need to be discipled. And you need to disciple. A.W. Tozer says this simply, only a disciple can make a disciple. You shouldn't be looking to be discipled and you should be looking to disciple someone. It doesn't have to be a formal situation. If nothing else, just take the time to help someone along. We are called to make disciples. And sometimes I think we think that that's just sharing the gospel and saying, "Uh, here you go, go fly, go do your thing. But it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop with them uh, accepting Christ, if you will. Turning to Christ is a better way to say that. It continues throughout the entire Christian life. Jesus goes on to say in Matthew 28 that we are to teach them, teach the disciples to observe all that that I commanded you. Beloved, we are called to make disciples and we are called to teach them. And that, that process doesn't stop. That process doesn't stop. We need to give ourselves to the, to the task of teaching, to the task of making true disciples. Let's look at the third element. We've seen the first two. We've seen the first two that we are to admonish. Admonish everyone. We should, we are to teach everyone. Let's look at the third element of our proclamation of Christ. We are to strive for their wholeness in Christ. Back in Colossians 1.28, we proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. The goal of our ministry, the goal of, of our ministry at Grace Bible Church is the maturity of the saints. In other words, we desire to make whole Christians. Paul, or James, that is, spoke of this in relationship to trials in, in James 1, 2 through 4. He said that trials produce endurance, and endurance brings about the, its perfect result, making us perfect and complete in Christ. This is the same word that Paul uses in Colossians 1, 28. And interestingly, James says this in 1, James 1, 5, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. Therefore, in other, in other words, James presupposes that we all lack the wisdom necessary for the Christian walk and to endure trials. Therefore, we need to be given wisdom. And when we ask God for this wisdom, He will not hold back, but will generously give us the wisdom we need. Brothers and sisters, we need to be a church which teaches the saints with all wisdom making them complete in Christ. We do this by boldly preaching and proclaiming the Lord Jesus Christ who is the embodiment of wisdom. This includes preaching the Gospel so that some will come to know Him, but it is not limited to this. We must teach the saints and bring them to spiritual maturity. 
And we know that we're successful in this if we see them go out and do the same. Well, we've seen the first point. We equip believers by boldly preaching Christ. By boldly preaching Christ. By knowing that He is all-sufficient. That He is all-sufficient for all things. We warn. We admonish. We warn. We teach with all wisdom. And our point is to make whole Christians. To bring Christians to maturity. Secondly, we equip believers by bravely laboring in the power of Christ. By bravely laboring in the power of Christ. That's Colossians 1.29. Paul says that for this purpose, I also, also I labor, striving according to His power, which mightily works within me. Paul says for this purpose, He's referring to his preaching of Christ in verse 28 and all the elements that go with this preaching. He labors for this purpose. He has given his entire life for this purpose. This word labor means to engage in hard work. And it implies great difficulty and trouble. It has the idea of, of difficult toil. Paul was a tent maker by trade. And as such, I'm certain he was, he was accustomed to, to difficult work. In other words, Paul sees this type of ministry, preaching Christ so that his people would be made complete in Christ as hard and difficult labor. I've heard of men who've gotten into the ministry thinking it would be easy. They imagine how easy it might be to work as a pastor. You know, flexible schedules a nice plush office with lots of books, sitting at Starbucks with your Apple computer studying and drinking coffee. Beloved, those who expect this type of ministry are in for a rude awakening. It's hard work. Paul says it's hard labor. It's toil. John MacArthur says this, excellent ministers cannot be those who yearn for earthly applause. Neither can they be lovers of earthly comfort. The life of ministry is not a life of leisure. The notion that ministry can be both effective and painless is a lie. End quote. It's at this point then in the text that Paul says something almost unexpected. Look at the text. He says, For this reason I labor, striving according to His power, now this word translated striving means to strive to do something with great intensity and effort. It is used of an athletic con contest. We've all seen the contorted look of a sprinter leaning into the finish line or a football player fighting for the goal line or a basketball player driving to make a layup over the opponent. We, we're, we're amazed when we see certain athletes make it look easy. And, and you know, you ask yourself, why does it, why do they make it look easy? Well, I would say, that you can look in their face and they, they look relaxed as they're doing it. Just think Michael Jordan with his tongue hanging out and his relaxed look. But the point is, is that you get, you get the idea that, that Paul is talking about striving and agonizing in, in his labor. De success in serving the Lord demands maximum effort. He demands that we give everything we've got to Him. This is where it gets interesting. This is where it gets interesting and almost unexpected. 
So he's using this word of agonizing and ministry and working and toiling hard in ministry. And he says this, he strives according to the power of Christ which mightily works within him. Christ then demands that we give it all. But all our efforts, all our toil and hard labor are absolutely useless apart from the power of God working within us. Did you get that? We are commanded to work hard in ministry, to give maximum effort, to to give maximum toil. But apart from the power of God, it's useless. John 15, Jesus proclaimed this, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in Me and I in him bears much fruit. This is the point. John 15.5 For apart from Me, you can do nothing. See, Paul recognizes that fruitful ministry is not possible outside of the power of Christ working mightily in us. If Christ is not with us, working within us, we are, we are utter failures no matter how hard we work. That's an interesting conundrum, right? We are called by Christ to toil and agonize, to, to labor, to labor doing ministry, to bring, to labor, to bring people to maturity to labor in prayer, praying for them, to labor in teaching, studying, readying ourselves so that we might impart wisdom to them. But we will do nothing but burn ourselves out if we don't acknowledge the need for His power. If we don't acknowledge the need for Him working within us. Brothers and sisters, brethren, This church, Grace Bible Church, will fail if we don't agonize to see it fully established. Yet, it will fail even quicker if we don't realize that we desperately need the power of Christ working within us. We must recognize that we can accomplish incredible things with much effort done in the power of Christ. We can agonize to make to, to see believers become mature in Christ, but it's only through His power that we can do so. Hudson Taylor says this, there are three stages in the work of God. Impossible, difficult, done. End quote. Paul made it his aim to give everything for Christ. But he also made it his aim to be pleasing to his Lord in all things. Beloved, here at Grace Bible Church, we must be committed to equipping the saints. This is the lifeblood of our ministry. As we have seen at Grace Bible Church, we equip believers by boldly preaching the person of Christ. we've also seen that there are three elements that must be present in our proclamation of Him. We are to warn everyone. We are to teach everyone. And we are to strive for their wholeness in Christ. Secondly, we are to bravely labor 
and the power of Christ. We realize that ministry is difficult and it's demanding. And we must recognize that outside of the power of Christ, we can do nothing. Yet, we know that we will be incredibly fruitful when we labor in His power. Brothers and sisters, I earlier gave you, earlier two, two sermons ago, I gave you the charge to do all things to exalt God. Last sermon when we preached the exposition of Scripture, I gave you the charge to, to preach the Word. Preach the Word in season and out of, out of season. Here I want to give you the charge to be committed to boldly preach Christ. To be committed to warning everyone, to teaching everyone, and to striving for their wholeness. I want to charge you to bravely labor in the power of Christ, realizing that while ministry is difficult, while ministry is incredibly demanding, and at times it feels impossible, to recognize that outside of His power we can do nothing. Brothers and sisters, I pray that you will be committed to boldly preach Christ, to bravely labor in the power of Christ, to not only see the lost saved, but to see the saved grow in their knowledge of their Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You and praise You. Father, we just thank You that we can preach Christ and Him crucified. For there's no other Gospel. There's no other work which we can do. Father, we thank You for a ministry of warning, admonishing of the consequences of sin. We thank You for a ministry of teaching with all wisdom. Father, we praise You that we, through the wisdom of Your Word, can be brought to wholeness, to, to Christian maturity. Lord, we thank You that we can bravely labor in the power of Christ. Lord, it's, it's hard work. It's difficult work. It's toil. But when we do so in the power of Christ, You bring forth the produce. You, you bear the fruit in us. As it says, we can do nothing apart from You. Lord Jesus, we thank You for this ministry. Father, may we be about... May we be about bringing the saints to maturity, equipping, equipping the saints for the work of service. We praise Your holy name. In Christ's name, Amen.